Chapters 93 through 95 of the Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. Translated by John Addington Simons. Chapters 93 through 95. 93. I went on working at my book, and when I had finished it I took it to the Pope, who was in good truth unable to refrain from commending it greatly. I begged him to send me with it to the Emperor, as he had promised. He replied that he would do what he thought fit, and that I had performed my part of the business. So he gave orders that I should be well paid. These two pieces of work, on which I had spent upwards of two months, brought me in five hundred crowns, for the diamond I was paid one hundred and fifty crowns and no more. The rest was given me for the cover of the book, which, however, was worth more than a thousand, being enriched with multitudes of figures, arabesques, enamelings, and jewels. I took what I could get, and made my mind up to leave Rome without permission. The Pope, meanwhile, sent my book to the Emperor by the hand of his grandson, Signor Sforza. Upon accepting it, the Emperor expressed great satisfaction, and immediately asked for me. Young Signor Sforza, who had received his instructions, said that I had been prevented by illness from coming. All this was reported to me. My preparations for the journey into France were made, and I wished to go alone, but was unable on account of a lad in my service called Ascanio. He was of very tender age, and the most admirable servant in the world. When I took him he had left a former master, named Francesco, a Spaniard and a goldsmith. I did not much like to take him, lest I should get into a quarrel with the Spaniard, and said to Ascanio, I do not want to have you for fear of offending your master. He contrived that his master should write me a note informing me that I was free to take him. So he had been with me some months, and since he came to us both thin and pale of face, we called him the little old man. Indeed, I almost thought he was one, partly because he was so good a servant, and partly because he was so clever, that it seemed unlikely he should have such talent at thirteen years, which he affirmed his age to be. Now, to get back to the point from which I started, he improved in person during those few months, and, gaining in flesh, became the handsomest youth in Rome. Being the excellent servant which I have described, and showing marvellous aptitude for our art, I felt a warm and fatherly affection for him, and kept him clothed as if he had been my own son. When the boy perceived the improvement he had made, he esteemed it a good piece of luck that he had come into my hands, and he used frequently to go and thank his former master, who had been the cause of his prosperity. Now this man had a handsome young woman to wife, who said to him, Sir Jetto, that was what they called him when he lived with them, what have you been doing to become so handsome? Ascanio answered, Madonna Francesca, it is my master who has made me so handsome, and far more good to boot. In her petty, spiteful way she took it very ill that Ascanio should speak so, and having no reputation for chastity, she contrived to caress the lad more perhaps than was quite seemly, which made me notice that he began to visit her more frequently than his wont had been. One day Ascanio took to beating one of our little shop-boys, who, when I came home from out of doors, complained to me with tears that Ascanio had knocked him about without any cause. Hearing this, I said to Ascanio, with cause or without cause, See, you never strike any one of my family, or else I'll make you feel how I can strike myself. He bandied words with me, which made me jump on him, and give him the severest drubbing, with both fists and feet, that he ever felt. 
As soon as he had escaped my clutches, he ran away without cape or cap, and for two days I did not know where he was, and took no care to find him. After that time a Spanish gentleman, called Don Diego, came to speak to me. He was the most generous man in the world. I had made, and was making, some things for him, which had brought us well acquainted. He told me that Ascanio had gone back to his old master, and asked me if I thought it proper to send him the cape and cap which I had given him. Thereupon I said that Francesco had behaved badly, and like a low-bred fellow, for if he had told me, when Ascanio first came back to him, that he was in his house, I should very willingly have given him leave. But now that he had kept him two days without informing me, I was resolved he should not have him, and let him take care that I do not set eyes upon the lad in his house. This message was reported by Don Diego, but it only made Francesco laugh. The next morning I saw Ascanio working at some trifles in wire at his master's side. As I was passing he bowed to me, and his master almost laughed me in the face. He sent again to ask, through Don Diego, whether I would not give Ascanio back the clothes he had received from me, but if not, he did not mind, and Ascanio should not warn for clothes. When I heard this, I turned to Don Diego and said, Don Diego, sir, in all your dealings you are the most liberal and worthy man I ever knew, but that Francesco is quite the opposite of you. He is nothing better than a worthless and dishonored renegade. Tell him from me that if he does not bring Ascanio here himself to my shop before the bell for vespers, I will assuredly kill him, and tell Ascanio that if he does not quit that house at the hour appointed for his master, I will treat him much in the same way. Don Diego made no answer, but went and inspired such terror in Francesco that he knew not what to do with himself. Ascanio, meanwhile, had gone to find his father, who had come to Rome from Tagliacozzo, his birthplace, and this man also, when he heard about the row, advised Francesco to bring Ascanio back to me. Francesco said to Ascanio, Go on your own account, and your father shall go with you. Don Diego put in, Francesco, I foresee that something very serious will happen. You know better than I do what a man Benvenuto is. Take the lad back courageously, and I will come with you. I had prepared myself, and was pacing up and down the shop, waiting for the bell to vespers. My mind was made up to do one of the bloodiest deeds which I had ever attempted in my life. Just then arrived Don Diego, Francesco, Ascanio, and his father, whom I did not know. When Ascanio entered, I gazed at the whole company with eyes of rage, and Francesco, pale as death, began as follows. See here, I have brought back Ascanio, whom I kept with me, not thinking that I should offend you. Ascanio added humbly, Master, pardon me, I am at your disposal here, to do whatever you shall order. Then I said, Have you come to work out the time you promised me? He answered, Yes, and that he meant never to leave me. Then I turned and told the shop-boy he had beaten to hand him the bundle of clothes, and said to him, Here are all the clothes I gave you. Take with them your discharge and go where you like. Don Diego stood astonished at this, which was quite the contrary of what he had expected, while Ascanio with his father besought me to pardon and take him back. On my asking who it was who spoke for him, he said it was his father, to whom, after many entreaties, I replied, Because you are his father, for your sake I will take him back. 94. I had formed the resolution, as I said a short while back, to go toward France, partly because I saw that the Pope did not hold me in the same esteem as formerly, my faithful service having been besmirched by lying tongues, and also because I feared lest those who had the power might play me some worse trick. So I was determined to seek better fortune in a foreign land, and wished to leave Rome without company or license. 
on the eve of my projected departure, I told my faithful friend Felice to make free use of all my effects during my absence, and in the case of my not returning, I left him everything I possessed. Now there was a Perugian workman in my employ, who had helped me on those commissions from the Pope, and after paying his wages, I told him he must leave my service. He begged me in reply to let him go with me, and said that he would come at his own charges. If I stopped to work for the King of France, it would certainly be better for me to have Italians by me, and in particular such persons as I knew to be capable of giving me assistance. His entreaties and arguments persuaded me to take him on the journey, in the manner he proposed. Ascanio, who was present at this debate, said, half in tears, "'When you took me back, I said I wished to remain with you my lifetime, and so I have it in my mind to do.' I told him that nothing in the world would make me consent, but when I saw that the poor lad was preparing to follow on foot, I engaged a horse for him, too, put a small valise upon the crupper, and loaded myself with far more useless baggage than I should otherwise have taken. From home I travelled to Florence, from Florence to Bologna, from Bologna to Venice, and from Venice to Padua. There my dear friend Albertaccio del Bene made me leave the inn for his house, and next day I went to kiss the hand of Messer Pietro Bembo, who was not yet a cardinal. He received me with marks of the warmest affection which could be bestowed on any man. Then, turning to Albertaccio, he said, I want Benvenuto to stay here, with all his followers, even though they be a hundred men. Make then your mind up, if you want Benvenuto also, to stay here with me, for I do not mean elsewise to let you have him. Accordingly I spent a very pleasant visit at the house of that most accomplished gentleman. He had a room prepared for me which would have been too grand for a cardinal, and always insisted upon my taking my meals beside him. Later on he began to hint in very modest terms that he should greatly like me to take his portrait. I, who desired nothing in the world more, prepared some snow-white plaster in a little box, and set to work at once. The first day I spent two hours on end at my modelling, and blocked out the fine head of that eminent man with so much grace of manner that his lordship was fairly astounded. Now, though he was a man of profound erudition and without a rival in poetry, he understood nothing at all about my art. This made him think that I had finished when I had hardly begun, so that I could not make him comprehend that a long time it took to execute a thing of that sort thoroughly. At last I resolved to do it as well as I was able, and to spend the requisite time upon it, but since he wore his beard short after the Venetian fashion, I had great trouble in modelling ahead to my own satisfaction." However, I finished it, and judged it about the finest specimen I had produced in all the points pertaining to my art. Great was the astonishment of Messer Pietro, who conceived that I should have completed the waxen model in two hours and the steel in ten, when he found that I employed two hundred on the wax, and then was begging for leave to pursue my journey toward France. This threw him into much concern, and he implored me at least to design the reverse for his medal, which was to be a pegasus encircled with a wreath of myrtle. I performed my task in the space of some three hours, and gave it a fine air of elegance. He was exceedingly delighted, and said, This horse seems to me ten times more difficult to do than the little portrait on which you have bestowed so much pains. I cannot understand what made it such a labor. All the same, he kept entreating me to execute the piece in steel, exclaiming, For heaven's sake do it! I know that, if you choose, you will get it finished quickly." I told him that I was not willing to make it there, but promised without fail to take it in hand, wherever I might stop to work. While this debate was being carried on, I went to bargain for three horses, which I wanted on my travels, 
and he took care that a secret watch should be kept over my proceedings, for he had vast authority in Padua. Wherefore, when I proposed to pay for the horses, which were to cost five hundred ducats, their owner answered, Illustrious artist, I make you a present of the three horses. I replied, It is not you who give them me, and from the generous donor I cannot accept them, seeing I have been unable to present him with any specimen of my craft. The good fellow said that, if I did not take them, I should get no other horses in Padua, and should have to make my journey on foot. Upon that I returned to the magnificent Messer Pietro, who affected to be ignorant of the affair, and only begged me with marks of kindness to remain in Padua. This was contrary to my intention, for I had quite resolved to set out. Therefore I had to accept the three horses, and with them we began our journey. 95. I chose the route through the Grissons, all other passes being unsafe on account of war. We crossed the mountains of the Alba and Berlina. It was the 8th of May, and the snow upon them lay in masses. At the utmost hazard of our lives we succeeded in surmounting those two alpine ridges, and when they had been traversed, we stopped at a place which, if I remember rightly, is called Valdista. There we took up quarters, and at nightfall there arrived a Florentine courier named Busbaca. I had heard him mentioned as a man of character and able in his profession, but I did not know that he had forfeited that reputation by his rogueries. When he saw me in the hostelry, he addressed me by my name, said he was going on business of importance to Lyon, and entreated me to lend him money for the journey. I said I had no money to lend, but that if he liked to join me, I would pay his expenses as far as Lyon. The rascal wept, and wheedled me with a long story, saying, If a poor courier employed on affairs of national consequence has fallen short of money, it is the duty of a man like you to assist him. Then he added that he was carrying things of the utmost importance from Messer Filippo Strozzi, and showing me a leather case for a cup he had with him, whispered in my ear that it held a goblet of silver which contained jewels to the value of many thousands of ducats, together with letters of vast consequence sent by Messer Filippo Strozzi. I told him that he ought to let me conceal the jewels about his own person, which would be much less dangerous than carrying them in the goblet. He might give that up to me, and its value being probably about ten crowns, I could supply him with twenty-five on the security. To these words the courier replied that he would go with me, since he could not do otherwise, for to give up the goblet would not be to his honour. Accordingly we struck the bargain so, and taking horse next morning, came to a lake between Valdista and Vesa. It is fifteen miles long when one reaches Vesa. On beholding the boats upon the lake I took fright, because they are of pine, of no great size and no great thickness, loosely put together, and not even pitched. If I had not seen four German gentlemen, with their four horses, embarking in one of the same sort as ours, I should never have set my foot in it. Indeed, I should far more likely have turned tail, but when I saw their hair-brained recklessness, I took it into my head that those German waters would not drown folk, as ours do in Italy. However, my two young men kept saying to me, Benvenuto, it is surely dangerous to embark in this craft with four horses. I replied, You cowards! Do you not observe how those four gentlemen have taken boat before us, and are going on their way with laughter? If this were wine, indeed tis water, I should say that they were going gladly to drown themselves in it, but as it is water, I know well that they have no more pleasure than we have in drowning there. The lake was fifteen miles long and about three broad. On one side rose a mountain very tall and cavernous, on the other some flat land and grassy. When we had gone about four miles, it began to storm upon the lake, and our oarsmen asked us to help in rowing. 
This we did a while. I made gestures and directed them to land us on the farther shore. They said it was not possible, because there was not depth of water for the boat, and there were shoals there, which would make it go to pieces and drown us all. And still they kept on urging us to help them. The boatmen shouted one to the other, calling for assistance. When I saw them thus dismayed, my horse being an intelligent animal, I arranged the bridle on his neck and took the end of the halter with my left hand. The horse, like most of his kind, being not devoid of reason, seemed to have an instinct of my intention, for, having turned his face towards the fresh grass, I meant that he should swim and draw me after him. Just at that moment a great wave broke over the boat. Ascanio shrieked out, "'Mercy! My father! Save me!' and wanted to throw himself upon my neck." Accordingly, I laid hand to my little dagger, and told them to do as I had shown them, seeing that the horses would save their lives as well, as I too hoped to escape with mine by the same means, but that if he tried to jump on me I should kill him. So we went forward several miles, in this great peril of our lives. End of chapters 93-95